0: Hey there, and welcome back to the Zach Evans Podcast. Thank you so much for listening today and spending some time with us. Uh, Just want to give a special thanks to our monthly supporters who uh, give a small contribution each month to the podcast To help us to try to improve things, and we're excited to put some of that money to use here in the very near future. And uh, if you'd like to be one of those monthly supporters and show your love that way, there is a link in each episode in the description that you can click on, and you can check that out. And there's different programs start all the way at 99 cents a month, which uh, absolutely makes a difference. And so, thank you to our monthly supporters. And if you'd like to be one, you can definitely check that out. So, this week, um, the focus, I think, would be on encouragement, is the way that I would think about it, as we discuss something called the inheritance of the saints. And this comes from Paul when he's speaking of the inheritance of the saints in light being translated from the kingdom of darkness. This really beautiful passage that we find in Colossians chapter 1. And as I got to thinking about really what Paul is talking about here by explaining things in terms of an inheritance, it was like, well, what really does he mean by that? Obviously, the man who gave us our explanation, or the foremost explanation of the justification of the individual, doesn't mean that any part of salvation is inherited. I mean, just read Romans and you'll understand that he does not believe that at all. God saves individuals, not families... Or nations, as far as justification is concerned. But what Paul is teaching us here is that our individual faith, although it saves us and cleanses us from sin and sets a place in heaven for us as individuals, it also places me into a larger context, a larger body, a a corporate, there's a, a corporate result of my individual. Faith, And one of the ways that Paul describes this is as an inheritance, the inheritance of the saints in light. So I have been placed, because of my individual faith, in a heritage of faith that goes all the way back to the likes of Abraham. And with that comes great privilege, but also great responsibility, and great opportunity. I mean, I stand in the same heritage of faith as Abraham, David, Moses, Elijah, so on. I mean, there's no respect of persons with God. And it's my responsibility to keep the faith, to protect it, to preserve it. And like Paul said to Timothy, the same commit to faithful men. Why? Well, one reason is so that this inheritance of faith can continue, so that it can be made available to the next generation of those who will believe. And I'll explain what I mean and what I think Paul is saying here, and it's really a beautiful idea that I think should rouse us to the determination that we will stay faithful, and that we will try and impact the next generation, and really in doing so, every generation that is to come. As we try to form something more like a spiritual legacy as opposed to just an individual faith. So give me a good hearing here as we jump into the inheritance of the saints. I pray that it's a blessing to you. Enjoy. Colossians 1 and verse 12. The Bible says, Give me thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Notice verse 13 who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. Um, So, I want to, I don't know, this is just kind of like a reminder, almost. Just a thought, a way of thinking about yourself and your position in Christ that I have not, I guess, fully considered before I kind of studied this out. So, the kingdom of God, which all of us are partakers of by grace," Paul describes here as an inheritance. He calls it an inheritance. Now, he doesn't mean it's an inheritance in every sense. Like, for example, it doesn't mean that because your dad was saved he can somehow pass it to you. That's not exactly what he means. But there's something here that I feel like we don't understand or we don't think of salvation and being a Christian in these terms as the inheritance of the thing, which is zoomed out from the individual salvation, right? It's zoomed out to a more like corporate level. We don't think of it as something that's passed down from generation to generation. And when you think about that, it changes the way that you view yourself, and it changes the way that you view yourself within the body of Christ. So I want to kind of work through this idea. I think it'll be interesting, and I know this is kind of... I think about the implications of this on me as a father. I think about this as, you know, shedding light on my responsibility as the current heir of the inheritance that I've been given and what my responsibility is because of that. Many people fall away from the faith, I think, because they don't properly understand their place in it And when you zoom out and realize the heritage that you have, the inheritance that you have been given, why in the world would you forfeit that? Why in the world would you give that up? Why in the world would you not do everything that you can to protect it, preserve it, and pass it on to the next generation? So I want to talk about that idea as we speak on the subject, the inheritance of the saints. So I think that our understanding of salvation today is unfortunately informed by our place in a really selfish culture. So if you look at the average church and their explanation of salvation, it has nothing to do with the body of Christ, it has nothing to do with some type of heritage of faith. It's purely individual. Now salvation is individual. (laughs) God doesn't save bodies of people, it doesn't save families, he saves individuals. But my point is that, doctrinally, we are influenced by the culture that we're in. And this is one of the things that postmodernism points out, that, like, you don't fully understand your frames of reference. And once you start to kind of wrestle with that, you realize that you have some biases, how do you say it? Biases? You have some biases in your life. You have some, um, you are predisposed to think of things in a certain way. So we live in a very individualistic age. Like, the phrase, my truth, is perfectly emblematic of that. Like, that's such a crazy statement, and yet everyone says it. There are Christians who use that phrase, my truth. Like, what does that even mean? It's an oxymoron. There is no personal truth. Like, it's not what you mean is my experience. That's literally what you mean. Or self-care, self-help. I mean, we live in an age that is consumed with the idea of individualism. Now, individualism is not bad. It's not bad. In fact, I'm very thankful, thankful for that. For example, we live in an individualistic society and that means that you as an individual have rights. That's important. If things weren't always that way. There's times where you as an individual did not have rights because you didn't live in an age that appreciated the value of the individual. It only appreciated you know, your line in a succession of royalty or whatever. So it's it's not an entirely bad thing that we're individualistic, but the problem is that the overarching purpose, overarching purpose of modern culture, unfortunately much of Christianity now is to please our individual selves and we end up applying that to salvation as well. And I'm all for a proper understanding of individualism. For example, we can trace this emphasis on like you as one person and your rights and your relationship with God all the way back to Martin Luther and the Reformation, as far as, you know, the past 500 years. And to a lesser extent, the Enlightenment. And there's a scholar, Stephen Hicks, who wrote a famous book on postmodernism. But So he, he says, no, the, the Enlightenment was the most important thing that changed people's conception of themselves. I completely disagree. He minimizes the impact of the Reformation. I think it was the Reformation. And this breakdown between the priesthood and the laity to where now individuals are understood to be as they were in... Paul's epistles, kings and priests as individuals, and then people lived that out through their faith. They did not live that out through enlightenment rationality. They just didn't. They lived it out through their faith. That changed the world forever. You can trace back our American heritage of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, all of that back to that idea, getting back to that fundamental concept of the individual having an intrinsic value to where the king. This is a radical idea. The king could not usurp your rights as an individual. Like, there's, you realize that there's a large span of time where no one believed that. No one believed that you, as an individual, could say no to the king. Well, we believe that, and we take that idea for granted. So, the gospel, of course, is individualistic. God saves people. Not corporately, but individual. The Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But here's what we don't understand, and here's where the disconnect happens. The gospel and the implications of it are not purely individualistic. Meaning, for example, Paul said that through faith in Christ we are all baptized into one body. We talked about that last week, the body of Christ. In the sense that you have the same spirit residing within you as I do. Right? So if we all have the same spirit residing within our persons, then, or within our bodies, then it, in a very mystical sense, makes us one body, because we have the same spirit. That's really quite an idea. The locality of the Holy Spirit of God within you, here's the thing we don't understand then, it doesn't end with you, but because many others are indwelt with the same spirit, it, in a sense, makes us into one body. And that happens at the moment of salvation, so it's not just you got saved and your sins are forgiven. Yeah, that definitely happened. But you got the same spirit, which is the animating force within you, right? It's, it's the part that makes you alive. You have the same spirit that I have, and that binds us together in a way that cannot be undone. Think of that. Our generation does not emphasize that type of understanding of salvation. So the church is another example of a corporate result of belief in the gospel. Now, follow, with, follow me. We're going somewhere. When we assemble, we mentioned this last week, we are an ecclesia or an assemblage that testifies to the reality of our faith in the risen Lord. And my assembly or lack thereof is a continued profession of the belief or lack thereof in the reality of the resurrection and those who do not assemble are professing that they do not believe that's why the forsaking of the assembling is emphasized so strongly in hebrews 10:25 those who forsake the assembling are testifying to the world i no longer believe jesus christ has risen from the dead because it is the only reason we had to assemble in the first place okay but i can say no 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 i know that i'm saved individual concept i'm saved I can tell you about when I pray, my sins are forgiven, I'm still going to heaven. And that might be true. That may be true. But here's the thing. To ignore all of the corporate results of individual belief in Christ is at worst to call into question whether or not you actually believe or at best to hide your light under a bushel. It's one of those two things. I cannot say, no, I believe Jesus has saved me from my sins. I'm saved, but I deny all corporate results of that faith. What? That's crazy. That's like saying, I mean, yes, you can divorce yourself from a family, but you can't divorce yourself from the Spirit of God. You can't do that. So this, I think, is one of the things that the Apostle James in his letter that people like Martin Luther found so uncomfortable, this idea about faith without works is dead, Um, I think that's partly what he's explaining there. Is that you can't deny the corporate mandates of your faith and then rationally say that you as an individual are saved. You can't say, it. we meet people like that all the time. They've never gone to church since they got saved, allegedly. They have no fruit, they have no evidence. They only appeal to their individual conception of salvation, and again, that's all it takes to be saved, is an individual profession, individual belief in Christ, absolutely, but there's a corporate result. There's a corporate result, and to deny that corporate result is to bring the individual profession into question by definition. Here's what's really cool. The Bible emphasizes the individual and the corporate simultaneously, right? We're baptized, he says, into one body. What? At the moment of salvation, you're baptized into a body and the body isn't made up just of you, it's made up of other believers. That's amazing. (laughs) That's incredible. And here's the point when we will see the perfect union of the individual and the corporate in Christ. In Revelation, we see this really mystical thing, this wedding between all of the believers who have trusted Christ and Christ. And we see that we will be, at some point, presented to Christ as his bride. Okay, so the bride is one body. (laughs) It's one thing. But that one body is a corporate body made up of billions and billions and billions of believers. So there you have, ultimately, when we are wedded to Christ, which is what this whole thing is about, When it's all said and done, we're, you know, tying every bow, dotting every I, crossing every T. When everything's finished, it results in a wedding between Christ and His bride. And the bride is expressed in singular terms as a bride, but it's a corporate bride made up of individuals. So there we will see the perfect union of these two concepts. Individual belief places you into a corporate body. Individual belief places you into a corporate body. So... There's an individualistic aspect of the gospel. It's your sins that are forgiven. You are sealed until the day of redemption. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. But there's also a corporate aspect of the gospel, largely found in its implications. We are the body of Christ through the indwelling of His Spirit. We are the local body of Christ through our assembly. And one day, we will be the bride of Christ in heaven. So we have individual belief, and then that places you in a corporate body. So when I'm placed into this larger context through faith in Christ, this larger corporate body is much bigger than me. Stay with me. I become a part of something, and this is what we get wrong. Salvation isn't just, in italics, about you. It's not just about you. It's not just about you and your sins so that you can go to heaven and go on your merry way and live your life the way that you want to. Yes, you are saved from your sins, but you weren't left right there as a saved individual with nowhere to go or nothing to do. You were then, the Bible says, translated, pulled from one thing and dropped into another thing. And we don't seem to understand that. I'm so thankful that salvation is more than just, and this is going to sound kind of strange, I'm thankful that salvation is about more than just individual forgiveness. Because if I am saved, cleansed, washed, justified, and then left on an island to strand, stranded on an island, so to speak, to fend for myself, then what of heaven? Then what is heaven? What is heaven? No, it's, it's so much more than that. I'm not just the the child who was, you know, in the back alleys, who's rescued from his despondency and, you know, his desperation. I'm placed into a family. So it's bigger than just my individual salvation. One of the results of that salvation is I'm placed into a body, a family. It's incredible. So salvation saves the individual and then places him in a body much greater than himself. So it not only saves the sinner, but makes him a partaker of an inheritance that reaches back all the way to the beginning of time. And when you think about that, it changes the way that you think about your individual, your individual belief. All right. So Paul says this is an inheritance. So what does that mean? So an inheritance is an estate passed from an ancestor to an heir by a succession or a course of law. So it's something passed from an ancestor to an heir by succession or in course of law. So it's my hope that when I die, I will leave a proper inheritance to my children. Probably made up of Chick-fil-A points and Cole's cash at this point, I would imagine. But what I have acquired, think about this, what I have acquired will be passed to them simply because they are my children. That's the only legal requirement, right? And of course, that would not Only apply to natural-born children, but like we receive the spirit of adoption, Peter says, we're adopted in the family of God with full rights. So likewise, my individual faith, listen to this, is a continuation of a spiritual inheritance or heritage passed down from generation to generation. Now what that means is not that the faith itself is somehow spawned in me because I'm the next generation. It doesn't mean that. I still have to believe as an individual, but that belief places me in this inheritance that has been passed down from generation to generation. So personally, like literally me as an individual person, I can sing with the psalmist when he says, the lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places, yea, I have a goodly heritage. I have a goodly heritage. I'm thankful for my heritage of faith. I have a Christian father and a Christian mother, and uh, I had Christian grandparents and Christian great-grandparents, and you know, not everybody was, um, you know, perfect, and everybody makes mistakes or whatever. But I'm thankful overall for my godly heritage. So they committed the same to me that was committed to them, like Paul told Timothy. So the continuance of the inheritance of the inheritance of faith could be unbroken. So yes, I have to receive Christ as an individual. My heritage does not save me, but my personal faith in Christ places me firmly within that blessed heritage. And here's the thing. If I choose not to believe, I break the continuance of the heritage. Like that's what's at stake. So if I get upset and I leave, I don't teach my kids, I don't hand to them what was handed to me. I break the heritage of faith. Paul told Timothy, keep The faith, keep it. He said, the same commit thou to faithful men. So it's your job to pass it on. Now there's people who say, Pastor, I don't have such a goodly heritage. I don't have that natural heritage of faith. Okay, but the inheritance of faith that Paul speaks of here is still available to you. It's available by individual faith in Christ. And at the moment of belief, I am placed in that heritage. With full rights and privileges. In verse 5 of Psalm 16 where we just read about the goodly heritage, David writes, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. He says, Thou maintainest my lot. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. So where men may fail, the Lord remains faithful and He holds fast the portion of my inheritance for me. So regardless of my family's spiritual lineage, if I'm a believer in Christ this morning, I stand in the same inheritance of the saints, the same heritage of faith as anyone else. And that's quite a privilege. Okay, but then let's think about that inheritance. I mean, think about the magnitude of the heritage in which we stand. And the privilege that I have been given to place my faith in Christ and be given this inheritance of the saints in light. We could go back to Abraham, where God takes a pagan man and entrusts him with the truth of God's nature and gives him a miraculous child. Then we go to Jacob and his 12 sons, the fathers of the 12 tribes, And then Joseph is sold into slavery. Then Moses and the Exodus, the Promised Land, Joshua and Jericho, Judges and kings, and the greatest king of all, David. Prophets saying that things wouldn't always be this way, foretelling of one who should come. Whispers in Bethlehem and Nazareth say he's arrived. Here comes a man from the desert. John says, behold the Lamb of God. Jesus performing miracles, never man spake. Like this man, groaning in the garden, betrayal, soldiers with sticks and staves, a cross, three nails, death, a grave, three days of darkness and grief. Then Sunday breaks along with the tombstone, soldiers quiver as angels descend, as death gives up the one he cannot claim. Forty days he appeared, a great commission given, ascending back into heaven, waiting in the upper room, Pentecost power given, the message spreads all over the world until it finds me it found me it came to me someone told me someone witnessed to me someone witnessed to my father and my father was saved driving down the road in Snellville Georgia in his truck he gets saved and his life changes he ends up joining a church he meets my mother who had gotten saved because of the bus ministry they get married a few years later, here I come. They raised me in church. From three years old, I'm sitting in the pews. At nine years old, I realize that I'm lost and that I need a Savior. And I go down and my father comes down from the platform. He's the assistant pastor, he comes down and wins me to Christ. That's the heritage I stand in. But it's not just the heritage of my father or my grandfather or my great-grandfather. This goes all the way back to the beginning of time. The message found me. That is my inheritance. And why would I cast it off? Why would I not cherish that? And this is even more incredible when I consider what I was saved from. When I consider the alternative to standing in this heritage. Where was I before my faith in Christ? Paul says, now I'm in the inheritance of the saints in light. But he says, as our text demonstrates, that before that, I was under, he says, the power of darkness. So I was under the power of darkness, and then through faith, I am now in the inheritance of the saints in light. That word power doesn't mean force, it means rule or government. It's akin to a kingdom. I was under the kingdom of darkness. The rule and law of darkness governed me. I was, as the Pharisees were, a child of my father, the devil, and his works I did perform. The prince of this world had me in the dungeon of his keep until, until the Son of God, the Bible says, here's the word, translated me into his kingdom. So I was under the law, the government, the rule, the power within the kingdom of darkness. The Son of God comes and lifts me up. He translates me. That word means to transfer. He transfers me out of the kingdom of darkness and into this inheritance. Now I stand with Abraham. I stand with Paul. I stand with John the Beloved. Whereas before, where was I? I was a hostage of sin, doomed to die, condemned with the world, until Jesus offered his life, a ransom for me. And my chains fell off. I was no longer a slave, no longer a citizen in the city called destruction, but made a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light. We stood in a lineage of darkness, an heritage of unbelief, But Jesus, as the heir of the kingdom of light, revealed himself to our hearts and translated us into his kingdom. And now we stand in an inheritance that spans the annals of time. That's what happened to me when I accepted Christ. That's where I was placed at the moment of my belief. What an inheritance You and I have and yet we see so many and I grew up with so many and know so many who just in a very glib way cast it off or waste it or even in more drastic scenarios despise it like the prodigal son. You and I have been given much. And whether I come from a physical family of faith, let's say, or whether I'm a first-generation Christian, I have been entrusted with this heritage. I have been entrusted with this inheritance. You're not just so-and-so from such-and-such. You're a saint of God who's inherited a lineage that goes back to the beginning of time. And that is why apostasy is so tragic. That's why it's so awful to see somebody get out, to see somebody fall away and backslide, to get out of church, to leave the faith, we might say. When someone falls away or backslides or rejects the assembling of believers, it is a disgrace to the inheritance they have received. And I cannot lose, if I really have it, that partaking of my inheritance, because like David said, he maintains my lot. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance. I can't lose Him. I am the Son of the Most High, and He secures my inheritance. But although it cannot be forfeited, it can be wasted. I can waste it. I mean, can you imagine? I think you ever bought, like, a subscription service or something, and then you just don't use it. I mean, I do that. We, so we, I looked on our credit card statement, and we've been paying $8 a month for three months for something called Yippee TV. Yippee TV is a Christian kids streaming service. And we had it for three months, somehow. Somehow we signed up for it, and we weren't using it. We had full access, full rights and privileges to the whole thing. And we didn't access it until we canceled it. (laughs) So I canceled it, and then it was, oh, well, we got to use it (laughs) while we still have it. See, when we realized, listen, you know what's funny is like, I don't know, people think that if if salvation could be lost, we'd be more motivated. Like I think we'd just be infinitely in despair. I think that'd be more so what it was. Like Spurgeon said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. So I, I don't think it's the motivating factor that some people think it would be. But I, I do know this we despise the thing that we have. The proof is in our wasting it. We don't access the full rights and privileges available to us. We just don't. We don't pray. We don't pray. Like we have access by faith into this grace, where don't we stand? But we don't use it. We don't use it. We waste the inheritance we've been given. It cannot be lost, but here's the thing. My wasting of the benefits of this grace can interrupt its transfer to the next generation. And that's something I have to really understand. Here's, here's a, a phrase that's been in my mind and my heart for the past few years. Is I, I don't just want to be a good Christian I don't just want to have a good Christian marriage what I would like for my wife and I with God's help what I'd love for God to do in our family is is the continuation of a spiritual legacy that's what I envision where it's where Mike my, my kids are saying my dad was a preacher and his dad was a preacher And we're in church and we're serving and then their kids are in church and their kids are serving. And you ever see those just ridiculous giant family pictures and you're like, like that kind of idea. And not just we all live in the same location, but we all share the same spiritual heritage. Like that's what's at stake. That's what's at stake. And so when I sin, when I fall, when I mess up, when I get out, when I backslide, when I reject, when I waste the benefits of the inheritance that I've given, I put the transfer, the continuance of that heritage at risk. And what would I trade for that? What am I really receiving instead of that? If I neglect my inheritance and I waste it, in the land of temporary pleasure, I shouldn't be surprised when my children and my grandchildren remain under the power of darkness. How many times have I seen that? Where people, some stupid reason, some stupid reason, they get out of church, they leave the faith, then their kids and their grandkids grow up lost. Just lost. They grow up, and we don't think about it in these terms, they grow up inside of the kingdom of Darkness. Now I'm not saying again that keeping your kids in church automatically saves them. I'm not saying that. I don't know anybody who would say that. What I mean is it's my responsibility to commit the same that I've been given, to give them that same opportunity to individually through faith place themselves in this inheritance and not reject it. I um I tease my wife's family. You can shut your ears, Sarah. We, we prize our family's heritage. I mean, people do. So much that we will prick our fingers and sell our DNA to Chinese-owned companies that probably want to kill us to find our alleged ancestry. It's probably randomized. It's just a pie chart they found on Google and they put it and send it to you in the mail and now your blood is in a coronavirus lab somewhere where they're trying to figure out how to make the virus kill people like you. But beyond that, um, I tease my wife's family. They say there's a rumor that they are Italian. I've seen no proof other than the temper. But beyond that, uh, they are Italian, and yet nary an Italian dish is to be found anywhere. So we go to Amy's house, Amy Broom. Amy Broom, calling Amy Broom. Go to Amy's room, she makes spaghetti, and it's a giant can of ragu. (laughs) Right into the pot. Like, are you kidding me? You can't brag about your Italian heritage when you would be disowned. You would be disowned. Laura and John just got back from Italy. I asked her, I said, did you feel like embarrassed and ashamed to be around real Italians? (laughs) How did that feel? They are Italian until it's time to cook. Like, that's a big, big problem. Okay, but I... Jokes aside, I asked them one time, kind of seriously, don't talk back in this room. I asked one time, I said, why is that? Like, where's all the recipes? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, boobity you know, like, whatever. I was like, what do you mean? You don't get to just whip that out. Like, you, you got to earn this right here. You got to earn that. So they said, well, they said way back, our dad, Laura's dad, I guess was, there is a heritage there. Grandfather, their grandfather. There is a heritage there of Italian dishes and recipes and all that stuff. It's there. But the transfer of that heritage was broken. It's what happens when families split up. What happens when sin enters and it tears something asunder? It messes up the continuance of the heritage. And so now you have this whole family of fake Italians, and some regular people. And uh, that's the name of our family group. The name of the family group, somebody changed it. I forget what it was before. And, you know, we have a family group, and we have a family group. And somebody changed it to something else or whatever. I changed it to fake Italians and some regular people. That's the name. That's the name of the family chat. And it's still, it's still named that for like months, which is awesome. Oh, it makes me so happy. But... There is a heritage there, but it was lost because of sin and separation. And the inheritance of that tradition was lost because someone desired, like Esau, temporal pleasure over their heritage. Think about Timothy. Timothy was the beneficiary of an unbroken line of faith. Paul says this faith was first in his grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice. And so Paul reminded Timothy of that. Remember the legacy, the heritage, the inheritance that you have. And you and I, too, stand in an inheritance of light greater than our family lineage. And we have the opportunity, and we might say the responsibility, to create not a temporary patriarchy predicated on our personality or our charisma, but a spiritual legacy founded on our common faith in Christ but the question becomes will I pass down what was handed to me will I keep the faith only a fool would despise his inheritance an inheritance is to be prized and protected and mine when you think of it listen to me goes all the way back not to Abraham but to the one of whom it is said he is before all things I, in some mysterious way that I don't want to say it's impossible to comprehend, but it's difficult to comprehend, I am a joint heir with Christ. Through faith, I am a joint heir with Him. Thank God He delivered me from the power of darkness and made me a citizen in His kingdom. What an inheritance. This inheritance in the saints' Light. Hey guys, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, make sure to rate, share, and most importantly, follow the podcast. When you hit the follow button, you'll get new episodes sent directly to your phone every Tuesday. See you in the next episode. God bless.